Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. You'll have to set, see by the end of the service which kind of person I am. Okay, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll find out, sure enough. Interesting theory, though, by the fellow that uh, Pastor Beach grew up with. Several years ago, a rabbi wrote a book and asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Did you ever wonder that? Um, when I was in college, it's my toward my last year. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I was just out of college, and I was dating this lovely young lady whose name was Sherry, who's now my wife. And I was running a paper route. And I remember I had to go down to Newark, New Jersey to pick her up. She was flying in from California. And I had to get my route done early, so I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm barreling around those, the, those Pennsylvania back roads trying to get all these papers delivered. And we had had a terrible storm the night before. And I remember I came, came up over a crest of a hill, and there were logs and rocks everywhere on the road. There was no place to go. So I just blew, 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 went over the stuff and, of course, blew out my dad's tire because I was borrowing my dad's car. <laughs> so these, there, there's all sub, sub stories here, which I won't go get into. I remember getting out and thinking, like, I've got to change this tire. Well, he had a newer car, and at that time, I didn't know. You know now, like, you'll have these special keys you have to put into the wheel itself to get to. I had no idea of that. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get, the, get, the, get, get this wheel off. And it was, I was so mad. And I was out there. I bent over my pants split at that point it started just pouring raining again i'm trying to get this thing off the wheel and i get so mad i kick the wheel at one point and then the cap falls off and I'm like, what's that and then i mean i finally figured the whole thing out but my, my hands are bleeding because i was grabbing the thing i tore my pants it's raining and i remember holding the crowbar in the rain looking up and saying god why why are you doing this to me do you ever feel that way? And I can look back on that, and it's, it's kind of funny now. But it's often not so funny when you look back, is it? My uh, sister, who's four years older than me, this goes back about 20 years. We were very close, and she called me on the phone. She said, I'm having some back problems. And being the sensitive brother, I said, go see a chiropractor. It kind of made sense to me. And um, six weeks later, she was dead. She's with the Lord now, and that's a wonderful thing. But she's not with us, and that's not such a good thing. And I remember, through that entire experience, and even to this day, if you say, Doug, I know the way God can use that, and I do too, but why her, why then? You know what I'm saying? And we, we, we have these, these questions that just dangle. We wonder, God, why are you doing this? It strikes me that all of us have things that we fear. Don't you? And perhaps they revolve around financial security. I have to tell you, I worry about that sometimes. I'm concerned about my family. I want to make sure they're going to be secure if something happens to me. You know that weight 
right? Do you ever fear a loss of relationships? Somebody in your family, extended family, good friends, and a loss of personal health. There's other things we fear, but wouldn't you say that those three are huge in our lives? There's times when you say, I know I shouldn't fear, I should just trust the Lord. We all should. But when our minds begin to wander sometimes, we wrestle. What I love is that God in his grace gives us a whole host of stories in the scripture to begin to grant us perspective in these matters. So, My task in about the next 30 minutes, by God's grace, I say about 30 minutes, all right, um, is to try to work you through the entire book of Job, right? It's a huge task, so we obviously can't deal with every text. But what I would hope is coming out of this that you'll go back and read the book yourself. Pastor Joel knows this. One of the greatest thrills for a a preacher of God's word is when somebody comes up and says, I want to go back and read that myself now. Do you know? That that thrills our soul. So I want to to walk through this story with you as we try to explore this whole question of why do bad things happen to good people? Real quickly, I'm not going to get to, into this in great, so don't, don't get lost in this, but just kind of as you think your way through the book, there, there is kind of what we often call this introductory prose section that runs about two chapters. There's a prose section at the end, and where we sometimes frankly get lost in the book of Job is this whole middle section, which is very poetic, which is this whole series of cycles and descriptions, and, and well, not, not descriptions, but dialogue back and forth between Job and his friends, right? And so that whole poetic section, you just kind of keep going in these cycles uh, until you culminate in the the, uh, interaction between God and Job himself. But here's how I want to kind of come after this. Sorry about this. It was my best rendition of how to kind of describe the book. I like to sometimes kind of plot out a book. And, and, and what you find when you read the book of Job is there's these whole series of kind of humps, if you will, where, where a problem is going to come Job's way, and you're going to go like, so what's he going to do? And he comes through, and you go like, okay, that was good. Wow. And then there's another hump. You go, oh, no, now how about this time? You go, oh, man, that was a close one. And then there's the third one. And that third one runs through much of the book. And you're going to find there are these three major tensions that come Job's way. There there will be a fear and a concern over personal loss, physical pain, and ultimately in an inadequate theology. And, And track with me as we tell the story. Because you know what I think you're going to find? His story is a lot like our story. Not to the same extreme. My guess is nobody in here has experienced what Job has experienced. And that's part of the hope that we have, isn't it? We look and we say like, wow! Like I have a little slice of that. 
Yeah. And, and, and that, that helps. That gives us perspective where we are. However, there are many similarities between Job and us, especially if you know Christ, specifically if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. So let's talk through the book. Starts out with this setting, and, and relax, I'm not going to read the whole book. All right, we'll just, we'll, just, we'll just read portions. And I would say this too, if, if you've been around Christianity a period of time, you, you know this book, will you by God's grace through his spirit try to hear it again with open ears to see what God might have for you. So look at how it begins. The Bible says in Job chapter 1 and verse 1, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. Folks, it doesn't mean perfect. Nobody's perfect. It just means his, in his relationship with God. He lived by grace through faith. And his life was marked by daily repentance. Do you see? And so he, could, he would be viewed in light of that as a blameless man, not a perfect man, and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, ten kids. And, and, and you know, in antiquity, that was a great blessing. The more, the merrier. And, he, and not just in antiquity, incidentally, either. In the present day also. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkey, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. It was kind of the Bill Gates in, at one level when it comes to his wealth. In other words, if you were in the area and somebody said, hey, what do you think about what's happening in the news today with blank? You know whose name you'd say? Job. Like, what's up with Job these days? He's influential in, in, in the town where, where he is. We're going to find out later in the book. I mean, wherever he shows up, people are going like, hey, it's Job. Shh. It's Job. Listen to what he has to say. Hey, or if you're poor and needy, it's Job. He's here to help me. I mean, that's everybody was impressed with this guy. It doesn't matter who you were. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Wait, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead there. My bad, verse 4. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of, of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. He's like a priest in his own family. And so Job was concerned with all of the individuals around them in their relationship with God Almighty. Wouldn't you love to have him as a neighbor? That's the setting. Notice how the tension begins to build. And here's what I want you to think. When you think about the book of Job, uh, especially in these first two chapters in particular, think of a split screen where, where you, 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 you enter in this, to do this experience in the heavenlies between God and angels and Satan shows up. Does Job know anything about that? No. Job is not privy to any of that. 
Nowhere in this book does God say to Job, Hey, Job, you should have seen what's, what was, what's happening up here with Satan. Never. Job doesn't know that. So you move back and forth between this experience in the heavenlies, and then you move down to this experience in the earth itself. My mic is not on. But you know what? When I flipped it on, I flipped it off. Okay. Thank you, Job. I was going to say, thank you, Job. <laughs> Joel. Okay. Is that better? Can you hear me? I'm not going to go back and say everything I said at the beginning, but we'll be good with that. Is that better now? All right, good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, anyway, so here we are. Split screen. Got that? Uh, split screen. Something's going on here and something's going on here. What's going on here? Notice. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. And it's not because he was just checking things out. He was out to do evil. That's what he does. Then the Lord said to Satan, now folks, can you imagine this one? God says this to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Wow. I mean, the narrator doesn't just say that about Job. God says that about Job. Is, is that unbelievable? I've often wondered, what would he say about me? Well, I know he would say, he's saved because of Jesus Christ. But he, I think he would say, but Finkbeiner is still in process, definitely. Nonetheless, does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well. Everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Job never knew that, did he? That was happening here in the heavenlies. And Satan was saying, Give me a chance. Satan is always on a leash before God. Isn't he? You know those leashes where they go around you when you don't like, don't like what the dog does? You go like, and it kind of pulls the dog back. You know what I'm saying? I mean, God in his sovereignty allows Satan to do certain things, but whenever he chooses, he pulls that baby back. So Satan may be behind suffering, promoting it. God is always over suffering, no matter what the source is. Do you see? It's always in control. But he allows Satan to do this. And Satan basically says, the only reason Job walks with you is because you're a good deal, God. You just let me touch his relationships and his things. And he will curse you. It's the great test of Job. Will Job curse God? Notice what happens next. Will you hear this? 
as if it was your family and your possessions. Verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They they put the servants to the the sword and, and I only am left who has escaped to tell you. And Job is thinking, these marauders have come in and they've taken that livestock. He's beginning to reel. But notice in the text, in rapid succession, notice what happens. The Bible says in verse 16, while he was still speaking. I mean, the guy barely gets done and another servant comes running up. Another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding um, verse 16, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants, and I only am left who has escaped to tell you. A, a, a firestorm, this fire, and it, it burnt and killed your, all your servants, and those livestock are gone. And Job's thinking about that point. I'm moving to financial ruin. It's not done. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another messenger came up and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on the camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Job is thinking in that moment, all my things are gone. I'm devastated financially. Folks, in antiquity, that's where you put your money so often. In your livestock. And thousands and thousands of livestock, that quickly, in rapid succession, they're gone. And in his mind, he's reeling over that, that financial loss when, when up comes the fourth servant. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, Another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are all dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. What would that be like? Ten children who you love very dearly and in one moment they're all gone. All the time you've invested in them. All the joy you've seen as they grow, grew up. And they're gone. Will Job curse God. Do you know down through history many people have? Haven't they? Can't tell you how many times I've seen people who have professed to know Christ. Dilemmas have come into their lives. Crises have come into their lives. And in that moment, they have become so angry with God that they have walked away for good. 
Now, I would argue they never knew him to start with. But, but however, we know people who have experienced these things. Look at Job's response, folks. It's unbelievable. At this verse 20, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. The pain was deep. He fell down to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Is that not amazing? All of that came upon him. Some people would hold their fist to God and say, I have had it with you. I, I want to have nothing to do with you again. You are not kind. You are not good. You are vindictive. And they leave. And Job, who has no understanding why these things are happening, can only fall down and say, God be praised, for God is God. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. I have to tell you, folks, (laughs) that's a hard one. Am I right? I mean, does anybody look at that and say, oh, that was, I could do that easy? No. Feel that pain. Think of the things that cause you to question and at times become angry with God. And I would argue that they can't compare with what he's experienced up to this point, although I'm not diminishing what you've experienced. That's round one. Personal loss of family. Look at the, and and things. Look at the second test. Here will be physical pain. Another day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. And Satan also came to be with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan says, from roaming throughout the earth there in verse 2. Verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless, upright. Man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. I allowed you to do this, and the man stands before me as one who worships. Satan said, skin for skin, Man will give all that he has for his own life. Now, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said, very well, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. Do you see the split screen? Going from here to here, we're back here again. Round two, physical pain. Verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles, sorry, from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pot- pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Have you ever had a boil? I've had in my life maybe four boils. And my whole life, 
revolves around that pain for that period of time that I'm struggling with that thing, right? Like if you have one under your armpit the whole time. Oh, oh my, oh, ah. I mean, you know, one boil, one boil, and like I'm very preoccupied with it like all the time. Can you imagine from here to here? When you go on and read through the book of Job, I, I, I listed, um, just in my own, to kind of help me, just listed some of the other things that Job says has gone along with all the pain that he's experienced. Here's what he says throughout the book. Job will say he has inflamed sores from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. They, at one moment they itch, another time they have, there, there's deep pain, the skin color has changed, he's lost his appetite, he's lost his strength and his weight, he has a difficult, difficulty breathing often, his, his breath is foul when he does breathe, he, he lives with a fever and constant pain, and he views himself as only being skin and bones. And all he can do is grab some old pottery, a potsherd, to try to relieve the pain, he, which hurts deeply, but he doesn't know what to do. Do you know what his wife says? Only family member left. She doesn't realize it, and I don't want to be too hard on her because she's experienced this loss too, hasn't she? But I do want to be hard on her at the same time. His wife said in verse 9, Are you still maintaining your integrity? What? Curse God and die. Honey, your pain and my pain are so deep. Curse this God who we supposedly know and worship and then just die. So your, your closest confidant, your mate, is a mouthpiece of Satan in that moment. And I don't want to be too hard on her. I understand her pain too. But she's playing into the wrong hands. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. What would you do? How would you feel? So, Job moves through this whole issue of personal loss and physical pain. And, and, and he doesn't come through it happy-go-lucky, does he? He's not there going like, oh, this is, this is great. No, no, no. His pain and his sorrow are deep. But in the midst of all that pain and sorrow... He's able to say, God is good, but I don't understand. The third wave is the one that offers the greatest tension for Job. And we're going to zip through this raid rather quickly, this third wave. It begins here at the end of chapter 2 and runs all the way over to God's encounter with Job. And, and what happens is, in this, in this next wave, I, I want to call it an inadequate theology. You know what happens. Job's three friends come, right? And one of the best things they could have ever done, they do in the first seven days. 
They sit with Job and they say nothing. They love Job. He's their friend. And for seven days, they watch. And then as chapter 3 opens up, you have one of the lowest chapters in the entire book, in, in, in the entire book and in, in the whole Testament. Perhaps only matched by what Jeremiah 20, when Jeremiah is, is lamenting his situation. And Job now just begins to express his questions and his pain in the midst of his friends. And one of the things he says in chapter 3 is, I wish I was never born. Can you understand that? I, I, I can. And so he laments and he says, here is my pain. And, and here's the problem. His three friends, and unfortunately Job, as time develops, end up buying into a wrong theology. And here's the theology. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. So they hear his lament, and he's crying out, and rather than empathizing and entering into mystery... Because they've got their theology down pat, Job, if something bad happens to you, it must be because what? You've done something wrong. So what you find, and, and running now all the way over to chapter 31, you find these cycles. And, and, and you, you have a cycle between Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I, I picture it like this. Picture... You, you, I, I shouldn't tell you this, but I'll tell you anyway. When I was uh, in college, I used to like to watch that fake wrestling stuff. Okay? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. I'm not supporting it. I don't watch it anymore. But I don't know. You know, you, you would, and, 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 you know, where they're always, one guy's almost totally wiped out, and he gets over to the line, and he tags out the next guy who comes in, and he's real, you know, and they do all the fake stuff that they do. Okay. Not supporting it. I'm just saying I did it. Um, I kind of view this text, this passage like that. Standing on the one side is Job. And Job, Job expresses what happens. And Eliphaz comes out first, man, and swing in. And he says some wonderful things about God. You know, the Creator God. And, and, and you're going like, yeah, so much of theology is, is it, it's, it's good. It's wrong because it's incomplete. It's not robust enough. But he says some nice things about God in the process. But he comes at Job and he says, Job, Job, remember, good things to good people, bad things to bad people. Something bad happened to you. There's something wrong with you. Job says, okay, I, I, I'm not saying I'm perfect. But I can't identify anything like that. I, I, I'm not like living in known sin that I can think of. Built that said, let me have a chance at him. Tag off. Blah, 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 blah. That's the same kind of thing. Just comes out of different ways. And Job says, if I admit to that, I'm a liar. I can't, I can't do that. Give me a chance. Zophar comes out, man. He comes after him. And as the book develops in three cycles, you see that going on. And, and what's interesting is, the comments by his friends become shorter and shorter 
And I, I don't even think Zophar even answers the third time round. It just, it, and you kind of get this, this sense where they're, body, they're finally thinking like, I don't know what else to say to this guy. He doesn't get it. And Job ends there in verse 32. And, and folks, this is what happens in a very subtle way. Job comes, I'm sorry, not 32, it'll be 31. Job chapter 31. Job comes in this lengthy description. He begins to say to his friends, if you're right that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, and I can't identify any known sin that I'm holding on to and not repenting of, then I think God does offer me an answer. Matter of fact, God, you got to come and explain this to me. I have to understand why you would allow this to happen. Do you see what happens? In waves, they come at him again and again and again. And Job begins to think to himself, if that's your theology, good things, good people, bad things, bad people, to bad people. And I can't say I did something bad that I'm aware of that I haven't been repenting of. God of the universe? There's an affidavit. I demand that you explain yourself. Do you see? It wears on him over a period of time. You got this Elihu guy who steps on the scene speaks for a couple of chapters, and scholars debate on how he exactly fits into this whole thing. I mean, I, I've, some will say, oh, he, he speaks with such truth, and I, I don't find him saying anything a whole lot different from these guys, except that he does begin to say, don't question God, and that's good. I think all he is is an, is an introduction to God coming on the scene, because at the end of the, uh, the book, God doesn't even mention the guy. So I don't, I, I don't give him high marks, but he... But, but he introduces God in some way, transitionally. In chapter 38, maybe I could explain it to you like this. We're on this last hump, if you will. God shows up. And look what he says. Will you come over to chapter 38? Are, are you relieved how quickly I moved through those chapters? Okay, like, man, at the rate at which he's going on chapters 1 and 2, we're going to be here a long time. And God will come and speak to Job in two waves. The question that, God, that Job has been asking of God is why? Do you know what, folks? God never answers that question. You know what question he answers instead? Who? I want to know why. And God's going to say who. I think it was George Bernard Shaw years ago. Who was a major critic of Christianity. Didn't like the book of Job at all. And a guy in more recent years who's written about Job, Bart Ehrman, has come to the same conclusion. One of the things that George Bernard Shaw said was, you know what? I can't stand this book. 
Because here's a man who's in the deepest amount of pain you could imagine, and all he asks is why of the deity. And all God can do in chapters 38 and following is talk about crocodiles and snowflakes. Like, what kind of a God is that? It's a God that doesn't care about anybody. And Shaw has totally missed the point. In two waves, starting here in verse chapter 38, God comes and he emphasizes in this first wave what Job knows, and in the second wave, what Job can do, although there's a mix of both of those. So he's going to talk about knowledge and power. And so he begins asking him a couple questions. Um, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Job, when I started this whole thing here on earth, where were you? Uh, I, I, I wasn't. When I made that, where were you? I, a- absent. And when I did that, where were you? I, I gone. How did I do this? I, I don't, I, I, I don't know. And when I did that, how that all? It's a question. Do, do, do you see? And he moves through this whole phase here in chapter thirty-eight, runs all the way over to chapter forty. And listen in chapter 40 what Job says after God gives a whole series of questions and then makes a series of statements. In chapter 40 and verse 3, the Bible says, Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I possibly reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice but I will say no more. Job says, what was I thinking to demand that the sovereign God of the universe explain himself to me? And then in a second wave here, God asks him a series of other questions, and these focus on God's power. Job, could you create that? Uh, No. Could you do that? Uh, uh, uh. I mean, all the way through, all the way through. Which brings us all the way over to chapter 42. And after God again asks these questions and makes these statements, we read in chapter 42, I know, then Job replied, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this one that obscures my plans without knowledge? Then Job responds, surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things that are too wonderful for me to know. God, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you answer me. Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Do you realize the most important question that needs to be answered in life is not why, 
but who? Shaul was dead wrong on this passage. Job had seen again and again prior to this that a sovereign God is control in control of all things and he manifests his goodness to people because that is who he is. But he does it as a righteous judge and sovereign overall. And in this moment, Job falls to his knees without any answers to any of his questions, but with something far better. A deeper knowledge of a God who, although mysterious, is always wise, always just, and always good. Verse 7 of chapter 42. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and with your friends because of what you have spoken. So you need to now take bulls and rams and, 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 and sacrifice to me and have Job pray for you. And that's exactly what happens. So there's a restoration that goes on between God and them. God is basically saying, Job had it. You were actually pushing him to sin by making him declare himself to be an unrepentant sinner when it wasn't true. And for that, Job must pray for you as he did his children in chapter 1. Verse 10, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over the trouble the Lord had brought on him. Each one of them gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Double stuff. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and then he names them. And verse 16, after this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and Job died an old man full of years. You know what Shaul said about this portion of Scripture? He said, that's, that's as bad as the fact that God never answers Job's questions. Because it has a Disney ending. And most people's lives don't have Disney endings. So it's a joke. It doesn't help people at all. And again, Shaw has totally missed it. Because here's the point, folks. God is good. And if people are not experiencing the kind of blessing He wants for them, there's always a reason, and we may not even know what that is, but there's always a reason. But when that reason is gone, God just floods His people with blessing. You say, think finer, wait. I know dear saints of God who contracted cancer and they died. God never healed them. I do too. But our problem there is we're not extending the story far enough. Because in light of eternity, as believers, we are given eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the beginning of something that continues, folks. And if you extend a believer's life 
into eternity, every believer's life has a Disney ending. It just may not be in this world. Do you see? We are people who live in light of the future. We look back and we see the cross looming larger than life, and we know God is for us in the person of His Son, for He has come and died. And we look forward to the fact that he'll come back one day and if he doesn't and we die, we end up in his presence. It's always a happy ending. It just may not be fully in this world the way we want it. I get it. But God is always good to his people ultimately. Always. So what's the point? And honestly, with this I'll wrap it up. In the mystery of suffering... Worship our sovereign God who is always wise and always good. Philip Yancey, years ago, made a statement that I've never forgotten. He says, Faith is accepting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Can I read that again? Faith is accepting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. There are things that we don't understand and we don't know the reason for. We know God can use trials in a variety of ways. The scripture is rich on that. But we don't know all the specifics, do we? But faith is accepting in advance at this point. Ah what will one day make sense in the future? What will make sense in reverse? All of us will stand before God as his children one day, and we're going to go, oh, got it. Aren't we? But on this side, we live with questions, and we don't have easy answers. But can I say this to you? You know so much more than Job. We don't know exactly when Job even lived. A lot of scholars argue around the time of Abraham. I don't know. It's not clear to me. I'm okay with that, but I'm not exactly sure. But there were so many of the prophecies that came later that Job never heard. And as the slide says, We know God can use sufferings in a variety of ways, but we often do not know the ultimate reasons because at the end of the day, the most important question in your life is never why, it is always who. The God of the universe does not have to explain himself to Doug Finkbeiner. But I have been so overwhelmed by his grace in the person of Jesus Christ that I can rest in him on the things I don't understand because of the things I do understand. And then one other thing. Job is, was blameless, but he was not perfect. But there was one who was perfect. God, in his grace, sent his perfect son, who went to the cross and lived, lived a perfect life and went to the cross and experienced suffering at a depth that you and I will never understand. Not the physical, the spiritual. So you have one who was truly abandoned by God 
so that you and I would never have to be. I love the book of Job. I haven't experienced the depth depth of what Job has experienced. I love the book of Job because I don't need to know all the answers. I just need to go deeper in my faith walk with the one who is for me in the person of Christ. And I love the book of Job because it was in the Old Testament and not in the New. And I know so much more. And I know God understands suffering in a way that I could never have imagined until Jesus Christ came. Who experienced that so that when I come into his presence as my great high priest, he is always for me to give me the grace and strength that I need. Even when I don't have answers to my questions. But he has given me the full, this fuller picture of what it means to know who God is. Folks, we know so much more. We're blessed. So I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're experiencing. But I do know this. If you know Christ as your Savior... He has entered into suffering in a way you and I could, would never. He is always for you. He is always with you in your suffering. And he's always up to something in the midst of that suffering. And although you may never get answers to all your questions, you can rest in the God who is always for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you Thank you, Lord, for allowing this story to be in the scriptures. It's hard early on, it's pure tragedy, but it's a story of great hope because it tells us that we can rest in a God who is both wise and good, even in the midst of mystery that we do not fully understand. Father, thank you for your word. And may your spirit put his finger on the issue in our own personal lives which Satan would like to use to bring a wedge between you and us. Father, overwhelm us with the wonders of Calvary, the wonders of your goodness, the wonders of who you are. And may we take our questions and leave them with you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.